Matthew 24. We're going to be beginning in verse 15, having read verses 1 through 14 last week. We're going to continue on in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, and we're going to read through to verse 31. So let's read God's word carefully together. If you have your phone, your Bible, please open up and let's let's read God's word together. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Let's pray together. Oh, Almighty God, a glorious day is just ahead for all those who believe in Jesus. But Lord, we are going to pass through tribulations prior to seeing you face to face. Now is the day of labor. Now is the day of enduring. Now is the day of faith without sight. But, O oh Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. And, Lord, I pray that the effect of this message, Holy Spirit, would be that we long for Your appearing all the more in a spirit of Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, would mark our church in greater and greater measure and all the more 
as the day of judgment approaches. Lord, I pray that our commitment to you as a local church family, our commitment to follow you, our commitment to one another would only just increase through the years as we approach the final day of judgment. And Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion at the end of this service, we ask that you would stir us with fresh reminders of your broken body and your shed blood by which we have been saved. Almighty God, if there's anybody here who hasn't trusted in you and your broken body and shed blood on the cross for their salvation, I pray that they would do so today and so escape the coming judgment and the coming wrath. Almighty God, I pray that you would have your full way in our hearts and give us listening ears and ears to hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just by way of setting up the context in this passage, Matthew 24 uh, began with verse 1. And uh, you see that when Jesus left the temple and he was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is talking here about the destruction of the temple, which last week we looked at happened in 70 AD. And then his disciples gather in verse 3, and they, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, just outside of the east gate of Jerusalem, looking down on the temple, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? So they ask him, when will the destruction of the temple be? And then, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what's interesting here is they talk about two events in one question, essentially. When will the destruction of uh, the temple be? And then, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And you think, well, wait a second, that's two questions talking about two entirely different events. But you see, Jesus just answers them, and they, they really take it as a matter of course that these two events are really linked. And Jesus really takes it as a matter of course that these events are linked as well, and because they are. We looked in Acts chapter 2 last week, and remember Peter on the day of Pentecost, right at the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter explaining what happened with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, right after Jesus ascended and, and returned and, and sat on his throne. And, and the church was awaiting his return. In Acts 2 verse 17, Peter quoting from Joel 2, the prophecy in Joel 2, he says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This 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 description of Joel in the Old Testament prophesying that in the last days there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and and Joel prophesying about the last days is talking about Pentecost. The last days, according to God's word, began when Jesus ascended to heaven. It's really important in understanding the Olivet Discourse and what's going on here in relation to the disciples and their question. Because it's important to see both the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was a cataclysmic event of judgment. And to see the last days culminating in the second coming of Jesus Christ on the day of judgment as a part of one tapestry. The last days are the time period 
scripturally between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's so important for us to make note of that and understanding the context here. Because as we moved from verses 4 through 14 last week in the exposition of God's word, we saw that Jesus first talks about the temple and its destruction. Then he talks about the entire period of time in the last days before his return describing it as a time of tribulation or great distress that will mark our time as a church. And so here in verse 15, it happens again. Jesus begins in verse 15 talking about the near event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the desolation that he talked about in Matthew 23. When Remember when he lamented over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. The, the desolation that Jesus talks about in verse 15 begins with the near desolation. And then Jesus begins to talk as this passage of Scripture unfolds. He moves from the near judgment as part of the whole to the final judgment when He comes back. And so it's important to see that for Jesus and for the disciples, this was all one event called the last days of which the destruction of Jerusalem The destruction of the temple was one major event as part of the whole. And we are living in the last days as well. In fact, I was thinking of 1 John 2 in my study. Um, 1 John 2 actually says we are in the last hour. And so you see this progression in Scripture where there, there is a progression of time, the last days, the last hour. There's an urgency that we're called to live with as Christians following Jesus Christ. So as we follow Jesus, let there be an urgency to our followership of Him. Um, Just in relation to verse 15 and proceeding through to verse 31, there's a couple of uh, things I want to talk about. The first thing is in relation to also the last days. You see a description, and, and you saw it last week in verse 14, where the gospel of the kingdom is going to proclaim throughout the whole world during this time of tribulations, during the last days. The gospel is going to go forth to the entire ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Then the return of Christ, marking the close of the last days, will will come about. And so there's there's good news here. There's The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is advancing Light and truth are advancing, but simultaneously, God's word is very realistic in the midst of that optimism with the mission going forward. And the realisticness of God's word is seen in the fact that there are, there's much tribulation that the church is enduring under throughout that entire period of the last days. And Jesus is preparing with a heart of care, his disciples, his people, for what the last days are going to entail. And so we're going to look at three points here. The first is desolation. Secondly, deception. And thirdly, day of days. Let's look firstly at desolation and point one. 
Last week, I, I talked about that period of the last days being a time where there's greater and greater darkness. And we see this throughout the epistles where phrases like, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Things are going to get darker and darker and darker in relation to the opposition to Jesus Christ. But simultaneously, there's, there's this happy thought and this good news that, that the gospel is going to advance to the ends of the earth in the midst of the growing darkness. There's this imagery that has been really helpful for me that I want to impress upon you. It's an illustration. I want you to think on it carefully. That I want you to think of a household that is is going completely dark on a non-moonlit night. And it's just going dark. And when Jesus comes, there's this, uh, the people living in darkness see a great light. And so there's this, there's this night light that gets plugged into the wall in, in one little section called Jerusalem and Bethlehem and this light shines and starts growing brighter and brighter as Jesus and his truth begin to shine brighter and brighter throughout that area. But in Acts, you see that Jesus predicts that and he says that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so there's this happy thought that the light of the gospel is going to go forth and spread from room to room. So Imagine it kind of being twilight and getting darker and darker and darker in this house. And it's, it's, it's completely dark. And then all of a sudden, the light goes on. Christ dies, rises again, and ascends. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost happens. And the light of Christ starts lighting up in Judea to Samaria. And then it starts going forth to the entire then-known world in the Mediterranean. As we looked at last week, it spread even within this first century all the way. Paul was talking in the book of Romans about getting the gospel to Spain. The, the, the gospel is going forth. Churches are getting planted. And, and, and each, what it represents is night lights are going forth into each room in the darkened house. But the, the darkness throughout the night just keeps getting darker and darker and darker. And that's the, the realisticness of God's word in relation to our times. The times aren't neutral. They are growing worse. And we need to take stock of that, church, and recognize that we live in a world that is hostile to the gospel and only going to become more hostile to the gospel. Um, and But the good news in the midst of that is there's there's a realisticness with Scripture when it comes to the doctrine of the last days. But there's also a realistic optimism. I like that phrase, a realistic optimism. We're we're not naive. We know it's going to get darker. And we need to live aware that it's going to get darker. But we don't give ourselves, as many professing Christians do today, over to a pessimism that just says, you know what? This world is just sinking. And let's just separate ourselves from the world and just kind of put our head in the sand. Thank God we're saved and we're one of the elect. And just let's just kind of wait for the rapture and just survive this thing until Jesus comes. And then we'll be rescued forever. And and I just, oh, we just got to kind of recluse ourselves away. No, what we see is there's this, there's passionate urgency to take the gospel, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel that we'll look at later on with Matthew 28, because God is going to cause night lights to go into the different rooms of the house, even down in the dark corners of the basement. And what's wonderful, and I love this imagery, the darker it gets, the brighter night lights shine. It can, it can light up your entire pathway to see a night light in your hallway at nighttime. And when you're 
in the midst of a darkened hallway and you see a nightlight the next time in your house, you remember the gospel's going forth in the midst of this darkness and take hope. Take hope, brothers and sisters, because that's what's happening here. There's a realistic honesty that the church has. Yes, it's getting darker. We need to be vigilant. We need to be on guard, but also a realistic optimism. A Hey, no, we're not going to put our head in the sand. We are going to engage the culture. We're going to engage the world and we're going to take the light of Jesus Christ to the nations. And we are going to sign up in our hearts to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, to take up the cross and follow him. And if we get killed, we get killed. We know we're going to get persecuted. We know it's going to be hard, but we're not going to stop proclaiming Christ all the way until Jesus comes back. Isn't that wonderful? I love that imagery of the nightlight. I hope that helps you. The nightlight's getting plugged in all around the house. So that all the nations, if, if the house represents all the nations, all the rooms get a nightlight and all of the rooms have representatives amongst God's elect on the final day when we will all sing around the throne, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Oh, it's awesome. And what a glorious mission. So let's have that realistic optimism in relation to the last days. And first we see the, the realisticness of it desolation. Jesus says this to his disciples. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This this let the reader understands also in the other uh, gospels. That description is let the reader of Daniel understand. I think this is a description here of how important it is for us to know our Old Testaments. To know not just the New Testament, but us to really study and love and cherish our, our whole Bibles, including the prophet Daniel. Jesus is referring to Daniel here. Such an awesome thing. Standing in the holy place. This is known as the temple complex. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let's look first at verse 15 at the, the desolation. If you look in Daniel and read through the book of Daniel, it's a great, great book to read. And I was, as I was studying it this week, in Daniel 9, 27 and in Daniel 12, verse 11, you can just write those references down, 9, 27 and 12, 11, the actual phrase, the abomination of desolation is used. And so Jesus is talking here about the abomination of desolation or maybe even more uh, literally, what this is talking about here is the abomination characterized by desolation. There's desolation that Jesus is prophesying. It's going to come on the temple, come on the people of Israel, come on the city of Jerusalem because of the rebellion and, and, and not believing in Christ. And it's, it's very real. And he already prophesied the woes in Matthew chapter 23. And, uh, oh, brothers and sisters, I can't resist this. You know, what, this is one of the reasons why I love preaching through an entire book of the Bible. Because all of us, we are capitalizing right now on the fact that we've just been working systematically. We know the context of 23 going into 24. This isn't just a spot sermon. We've got a background that we're working with now and a momentum that we're capitalizing off of in the Spirit of God through, through reading through the, the entire book of Matthew and preaching through the entire book. And I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about preaching through books of the Bible. And I, man, I hope I live long enough for us to get all the way from Genesis through to Revelation. I'm pumped. This abomination of desolation is a peculiar phrase, and it's talking here about the phrase in Daniel. There's another reference in Daniel 1131 
which prophesies about a time in 168 BC, this is before Christ, when a Syrian leader under Greek control named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian leader under Greek empire control, attacked Jerusalem and desecrated the temple so badly that he actually erected an altar of Zeus over the altar of burnt offering in the temple. And not only that, he sacrificed a pig, which is the most unclean animal to the Jew. He sacrificed a pig and made practicing Judaism a capital offense in 168 BC. This prophecy about the abomination that causes desolation in 1131 seems to be fulfilled in 168 BC with Antiochus Epiphanes, but it has this reverb effect where it wasn't just that moment that was the abomination that causes desolation. There's also the desolation that comes upon the temple, that comes upon the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that that comes under the Roman Empire, that sees an echo effect of it. It wasn't just the Greeks and the Syrians, but also under the Roman Empire as well. This abomination that causes desolation is to take place. Interestingly enough, just a, real, just a quick little bit of history. In 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes was soon defeated by zealots. Remember, we're talking about the, the zealots and the people of Israel who were sick of foreign rule. And, and there's actually what was described as the Maccabean Rebellion. Have you ever heard of that? The Maccabean Revolt, um, where the, the Maccabeans revolted, who were zealots, and they actually overcame the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 165 BC, this is cool. This is where Hanukkah comes from. It was a celebration commemorating and rededicating the temple after the first abomination of desolation took place in 168 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes was brought down and the temple was rededicated after the desecration of that time. And so we've got 165 years and then Christ is born and then we approach 70 AD that Jesus is prophesying about here in verse 15, a time of desolation that's going to come again on the temple and upon Jerusalem and the people of Israel due to rejecting the Messiah. And that's prophesied about in Daniel 9:27 and 12:11. Read the book of Daniel. You will love it. Um, this let the reader understand speaks to imp- the importance of Bible study and to study the word of God. I'm so excited for the ladies going to study the Bible in Ephesians and last year going through Philippians together. I- I'm so thankful for just your hunger for the word. My wife was just telling me, Shannon, that there's 39 ladies signed up for the Bible study already. We've got to order more books. Amen. Such is your hunger for the word, women of God. And we are so thankful for you. But this, this desecration is going to happen in the holy place, in the temple complex, Jesus says. And there's actually a description in Luke 21, 20 that, that says when the, the time of this desecration is going to take place, it gets a little bit more specific. It says, and you might remember this phrase, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know its desolation is near. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, Jesus is talking here to his disciples, and Matthew is writing this gospel 
in that first 35 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus in order to prophesy that the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen within their generation. And he's prophesying it so that the Christians will know when it's coming and so that they can flee and escape from it when it does. This is really important because I think there's a tendency, and we looked at this last week, that when we read, especially in the Olivet Discourse, so when you see the abomination of desolation, that we immediately think, okay, this is, this is, this is talking about our time. But we, we talked about this last week that we need to first think, okay, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he keeps referring to within this generation that this desolation is going to occur. What is he talking about here? And we need to, we need to interpret scripture first as that which is fulfilled to the original hearers of this gospel and to the original ones who received this word from Jesus, this prophecy, but then also recognize that it's also one part, this abomination of desolation in AD 70 is talking about. It's one part of a whole which characterizes the entire last days. And so it also has relevance for us. But we can't just say it's just relevant for us and ignore what it was most relevant for in that moment, in that historical context, in that present moment. We're going to get to the immediate application of the return of Jesus Christ, which has immediate relevance for us and was at a time far off for them who were hearing this from Jesus in the immediate. But we need to interpret Scripture and remember that we need to we need to remember that these were near events before they were far events and these near events symbolized what was going to take place all the way through the last days and so 66 through 70 Rome comes under the emperor Titus and the the ruler Titus and what happens is is Jerusalem is besieged and i want to read this quote to you because i think this is so encouraging um These instructions that are given here in verse 17 uh, or 16, then let those who are in Judea, which is the region outside of Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. This is specific caring instructions from Jesus to the early church around Jerusalem and Judea and the Christians there, the Jewish Christians. And then in 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his, in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And then this description here in 19 and alas for women, you see that just this care Jesus has for the women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath where not a lot of help would come. Jesus is talking there and he's saying for then there will be a great tribulation. This tribulation of the desolation of Jerusalem also affected the entire region around Judea where when the Roman army was coming in it was quite obvious that they were coming in to destroy there were actually Christians who obeyed this prophecy and fled and survived the massacre because they listened to Jesus this is such a cool cool moment I hope this encourages you Uh, Sam Storms writes in his book, Kingdom Come, these instructions were in fact followed by Christians in Judea and Jerusalem. 
Some point to the fact that in late 66 AD, the Christian community, under the leadership of Simeon, the cousin of Jesus, withdrew to the village of Pella in Perea, a mountainous region east of the Sea of Galilee. History records that the commander Cestius inexplicably and without warning ordered his troops to withdraw from a siege in Jerusalem for a brief period of time before the siege reconvened and continued through to 70. Inexplicably and without warning, he ordered his troops to withdraw, and this gave the Jewish believers an opportunity to flee the city in accordance with Jesus' advice. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian who captured these events, after Cestius the Romans' siege and the retreat, the Jews left Jerusalem like swimmers from a sinking ship. And by all accounts, this, this is so wonderful, by all accounts, no Christian died in the Holocaust that engulfed Jerusalem shortly thereafter. William Whiston, in 1737, Josephus' best-known English translator, writes this. Listen carefully. There may be another very important and very providential reason be here assigned for this strange and foolish retreat of Cestius, the Roman ruler overseeing the siege at that time. Which, if Josephus had been now a Christian, he might probably have taken notice of also. And that is the affording the Jewish Christians in the city an opportunity of calling to mind the prediction and caution given them by Christ about 33 years and a half before. That when they should see the abomination of desolation or the idolatrous Roman armies with the images of their idols and their ensigns, ready to lay Jerusalem desolate, when they see those ensigns stand where it ought not, like in the passage, in the holy place, or when they should see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, they should then flee to the mountains. By complying, by complying with those Jewish Christians, they fled to the mountains of Perea, and escaped of Cestius this destruction. Many Christians survived this abomination of desolation that came upon the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding region because when they saw signs of the Roman army coming, they escaped for their lives with the urgency that Jesus is talking about. It's going to be so urgent and terrible. Don't even go back down in your house from the rooftop where so many of the Jews would have a rooftop spot where it would almost be like a living room at night. After the heat and the sun went down, they would hang out up on the rooftops. He's saying there, if you see this starting to happen, flee and don't go back down in your house to get a cloak. And also, if you're in the field, flee and don't go back. Don't turn back. Just escape. And Christians survived due to listening to Jesus' advice. I just think that's an awesome thought. And it's also a sign here of that what Jesus prophesies here, it came to pass within that generation, which shows that Jesus is the Messiah. It ought to reinforce your faith that Jesus is the Messiah and also that Jesus cares. He cares about your life, Christian. He cares about the details of your life. He cares about your physical well-being and your spiritual well-being. And it's important to take note of this, that his prophecy saved the lives of our brothers and sisters in the first century who listened and fled. 
speaking about the savagery of Jerusalem, the one difficulty in this passage is in 21, where it talks about the great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. D.A. Carson writes that the savagery and the slaughter, the disease and the famine, mothers eating their own children, were monstrous. There have been, Carson says, greater numbers of deaths Six million Jews in the Nazi death camps and an estimated 20 million Jews under Stalin. But never so high a percentage of a great city's population. So thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. 1.1 million Jews were massacred with regard to age or gender. 100,000 taken into slavery in 70 AD. It was, it was an absolute wipeout. It, 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 the abomination of desolation is an appropriate phrase for what took place in relation to that judgment. So that's desolation. That's what takes place there in 15 through 21. That's what it's talking about. It's got this immediate application. And then in 22, it transitions. It transitions to point two, deception. And this is where it starts talking about a transition from that immediate context into the entire time of the last days, the tribulations or the great distress that will mark all of the last days and the times that we're now living in. In verse 22, the word of God says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. The description here of no human being is talking about more of a worldwide, where in 15 through 21, it's talking about specifically Judea, and it's talking about Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So ge- geographically and culturally, there's a shift where we see Jesus begin to transition from, from the, the immediate and the, 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 the area around Jerusalem to going more broad and talking about the last days as a whole. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And he starts talking about those days. Verse 23. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Jesus is saying they're lying to you. These are false Christs. Don't, they're false prophets. Don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. In relation to this deception, Jesus is talking about false messiahs that are going to lead many astray. This was very prevalent throughout church history and is even prevalent in our day. I was actually just talking with John Reyes uh, just this past week when he had the, uh, the pleasure, really, of ministering to brothers and sisters down in Honduras a couple years ago, teaching at a, a group of pastors and group of Christians down there. He was talking about in that local area there was a, a man who was claiming to be uh, the Messiah, and it was leading many of the believers down there astray, and it was causing great turmoil. And there's stories like that throughout church history, and there's stories out there prevalent today if you search for them. Jesus prophesied that this was going to take place. 
this lie of what we see throughout the New Testament of the beast and the false prophet lying and saying that, 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 that this is the Christ and the lies that are flowing out from Satan's heart with the intention of actually even deceiving the elect if possible. Now, the elect are not going to be deceived. They're going to be preserved. But, but the intention is so great that the zeal to deceive is so strong that the intention of the deceivers is actually, if possible, to deceive even the church, to deceive even the elect, those ordained for salvation by the Lord and chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. It's going to get so bad, Jesus says, that if those days weren't cut short, no one would survive. This is a point of distress a point of deception. There are going to be signs and wonders performed by these individuals through the power of Satan himself. And many people are going to turn to follow these antichrists spoken of in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John 2, I'm, I'm really affected by this. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2, there's a description in verse 18. I'm just going to read this to you, but if you can uh, read along with me. It says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. It's a parallel passage to what's taking place here in Matthew 24, 15 through 31. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. See, now there's this description, this sad description from the Apostle John of those who are actually being led astray. And it says, they went out from us and here, but they were not of us. They were not of God's elect and they were led astray. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And you see here the emphasis of the need to continue to endure. Like Jesus said, everyone who endures to the end will be saved, like we looked at last week. But they went out, these ones who were led astray by these antichrists. And in the very last of the last days, the antichrist, they went out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Oh, brothers and sisters, hold on to that. Hold on to that. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And there you just, you just knock off the map almost every cult that denies the sun and elevates its own leaders into the point of being a Christ. These are anti-Christ. These are to be rejected and turned away from. And we are to hold on to the one true Christ and believe in the Father and the Son, the Apostle John says. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There it is again. They're trying to deceive you. This maps right onto what Jesus prophesies is going to happen. They're going to try to deceive you. They're going to try to turn you away with lies from following me to following false Christs, false messiahs. And they're going to perform even signs and wonders, Jesus says in Matthew 24. And so we must be discerning Christ Community Church. Verse 27 of 1 John 2, But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should, anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Abide in Christ. That word abide from John 15 is, we are connected. Stay closely connected to Jesus. That's our call. To stay so closely connected to Jesus, to walk so closely with the truth, that immediately when we hear a false Messiah speak, we know it's error, we know it's heresy, and we run away from it. I, I love Jesus talking in John 10, talking about the good shepherd. He's like, my own people, when they, when they hear my voice, they listen, but when they, they don't recognize my voice, they run away. And that's, brothers and sisters, the importance of us really knowing God's word, believing it, and holding fast to it, so that when false teachers and false messiahs come, even performing miracles, that dazzle our eyes, so strong that it's actually with the intention of actually deceiving the elect if it was possible. Brothers and sisters, we should not turn away. We should be alert. This is an age of evangelism. And this is an age of distress where wars and famines and persecution and hatred and false prophets are going to be so bad that if not checked, no one will survive, one Christian said. This mimics Satan who is a thief who desires to kill and destroy. He hates your faith and wants to do everything he can to get your eyes off of Jesus. Father, it's just a word to us. Are we alert? I was thinking of 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, where it talks about the men of Issachar in ancient Israel. And it said about these men of Issachar that they had understanding of the times. Do we have understanding of the times? Are our eyes understanding what's happening out here? I think we need real discernment with this. Because I was, this morning, my son Blair came down in in distress. And he said to me, Daddy, I'm greatly distressed. And I said, why is that, Blair? He said, because Lightning McQueen has a really great crash in Cars 3. And I laughed, and I love, my son loves cars. I love cars. And love rewatching cars. And it's great to enjoy movies and entertainment with our kids when it's not defiling them. But I was thinking about that further, that if we're not alert, 
we could just think that life is just this funny little easy life that we're not in a wartime where the biggest concern and the greatest distress is stress over how a movie's going to play out and isn't life grand isn't life great and we can start to be seduced by the spirit of the age and we can start not becoming alert and we can start avoiding being watchmen brothers that are gatekeepers to our families and to our homes to make sure that our wives and our kids are spiritually protected and blessed and we can stop starting to be, stop staying vigilant in prayer, start fading from the word and the preaching of the word in church and we start drifting from fellowship in the church and we gotta recognize that Satan's just trying to lull us to sleep with the music of the world so we don't understand the times and so that we just succumb to the spirit of the age here in America where we don't have physically hard times often the lot of us because we live in such a prosperous country but the reality of it is that this spiritual oppression and darkness is upon us and we need to be alert we need we need to be discerning brothers and may we be examples dads of commitment to christ commitment to his church may our devotion to the word of god be seen by our kids and may i be alerting my son blair that there's greater distresses than that Lightning McQueen had an accident in a movie. There's spiritual dangers that I want to prepare and equip him to, even while we do enjoy lots of fun as a family. We've got to prepare our children for the last days. We've got to prepare them so that they're spiritually vigilant. We have to be spiritually vigilant ourselves. We really have to have a wartime mentality, brothers and sisters. Jesus is talking here about the times of deception. And if we're not discerning, we actually have antichrists seeking to abide for our attention, dazzle us, and turn us away from abiding in Jesus Christ. So men and women, let us all take this to heart and hold fast to Christ with the urgency that God's calling us to have. The third and final point, day of days. And if I could have the ushers begin to uh, mobilize for communion, and if you could begin to hand out the elements for communion. As they're doing that, I'd like to just ask us to really remain quiet as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper and as we look intently at this passage. Let's look at verse 27 and 28. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, Do not believe it, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And let's read 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. (laughs) So funny, I can hear... Just Ben and John in my ear, just make sure that you don't try 
to preach in five minutes what's a whole sermon. I'm so thankful for their discernment to me through the years with this. This is such a massive point. I, I don't want to rush through it. <laughs> you agree, John? Let's focus. We'll focus fully on this point, day of days, next week. But as we're preparing our heart for communion, I want to draw our attention to one major point in relation to the substance of this passage here in 27 and 28. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Thank you, Rob. As we contemplate this morning, brothers and sisters, the broken body and shed blood of our Lord, let us ponder that Christ was born in a manger and He was born in Bethlehem under relative secrecy that people didn't recognize that in Bethlehem of Judea that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords had just been born. When He comes back, it's going to be like lightning. Every eye is going to see Him. Brothers and sisters, it is going to be so glorious this day. It's going to be so visible that you're not going to be able to mistake what's happening. And I think that there in verse 28, that peculiar phrase, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I believe that what this is talking about here is that just as people from far away can see vultures circling high in the air, signaling what's happening or what has happened on the ground, Christ's return in judgment will be visible. It will be visible and every eye is going to see Him. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us look to the return of Jesus Christ. Let us be faithful in these times, in these days of tribulations or great distress like we've been looking at in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus said, we're going, to work, we're going to walk through together. Let us be prepared. But let us also get excited. It is going to be such a glorious day when He comes, our glorious King. All His ransomed home to bring. And then anew, this song we will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Oh, brothers and sisters. It's going to be cataclysmic. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon's not going to give its light. Stars are going to fall from heaven. Second Peter 3 says that the heavens are going to roar. It's going to be so loud when Jesus comes back. It's going to be unmistakable. It's going to be visible. And you're either going to be filled with one of two emotions. You are either going to be filled with joy. Or, as the word in 29 through 31 says, all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn. 
because the destruction that is going to come upon those who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord, those who willfully gave themselves up to the deception and said, I'm going to follow the Antichrist, I'm going to turn away and obey the Antichrists and the false messiahs and the lies and the error of those who have rejected the truth, those who were not of us and who do not continue in the truth. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's going to be a great and terrible day of judgment. The day of the Lord is going to be so fearful for them that in the book of Revelation it says that they're going to cry out actually for the mountains to fall upon them because so great is the wrath of the Lamb of God. It will make the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD seem like nothing. That's how epic it's going to be. That's how visible it's going to be. Are you ready? Am I? In these coming weeks, we're going to be focusing in on the return of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be so excited. I can't wait to do this with you. But there's a very sobering reality that we are called to readiness. And this morning, as we partake of communion together, I wonder, are you moved? Am I moved? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this judge of all the earth who will come and his second coming will be visible to all. And it won't be a baby in a manger, but a riding conqueror on a white horse. Are you ready? For his return. Do you marvel. That this. Riding conqueror. This coming king. Humbled himself. And became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. For you. Willingly suffered for his. Suffered his body. To be absolutely broken. And his blood to be shed for you. Let us remember the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. His humiliation, his suffering, and his death. Even as we anticipate the glorious visible return that will shine like lightning so that every eye sees him. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering for us. Let's partake. In the same way, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement. And through faith in his blood, all those who trust in Jesus Christ do not need to fear the day of wrath because wrath fell upon Jesus instead of on you and me, believer. All because of the shed blood of our Lord that we remember right now. Thank you, Jesus. I was...
thinking in closing, I think Tom will hold off on the uh, Alleluia, what a Savior. But there is a hymn that's been much on my mind. And the last stanza, particularly, of this hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. So Brian and media team, if you wouldn't mind projecting the last stanza of It Is Well With My Soul. Church, can we sing this together, a cappella, and just reflect on the fact that our faith very soon will be sight and that a glorious day is just ahead for all those who believe in Jesus. Join in with me together. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be day is just ahead for all those who believe in Jesus. How can we thank you enough, Almighty God, for being one of your elect that you have chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world? Every individual in this room who has repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. Oh, Lord, they can have the security of knowing that, Lord, you are going to preserve them. You're going to keep them. But Almighty God, pour out the Holy Spirit upon us that we might endure to the end through all the tribulations of the last days, through all the deceptions that we just read about in this passage that are going to come upon us. Help us as fathers to prepare prepare our children, Lord God, for being young boys and girls who understand the times and Lord, who are living for the kingdom of God and the glorious gospel, help us, older men and older women, to understand the times and to not be lulled to sleep by the lies of Satan and the Antichrist. And Lord, help us to cling to Jesus with all of our heart in these last days, trusting in Him and not letting go of the truth once for all delivered to the saints. We love you, Almighty God, and we we are so thankful for your broken body and shed blood by which we have been saved and our sins have been atoned for. We can't wait for your return. We can't wait for that trumpet. And we can't wait, Lord, to see you return like the lightning 
visible in the east and in the west. What an awesome day that's going to be. And we look forward to it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Amen. Amen. Love you, church. I'm so thankful to be walking for Jesus alongside of you in these last days. And I'm looking forward to the coming weeks where we get to just marvel at the return of Christ. I'm so glad we didn't rush you to that third point, aren't you? God helped me. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day and uh, happy Father's Day, dads. Enjoy.